One of the interesting things about this time of year is we're ending a year and beginning a year. We used to say is we're like turning the page on a new year, but none of us have paper calendars anymore. So I don't know what that means, but uh, scrolling in our app to a new year is that there's all these articles or uh, reports about trends of the year. And sometimes those trends aren't just trends of the past year. They're trends of like where we're headed culturally in this like window of our human story. And when it comes to our theme for Advent this year, fear not, the words of the angels in their uh, Advent visitations, it seems like that phrase, fear not, fits well with the trend. Not just of this year, but of our moment in history. As a matter of fact, if we look back at the last two decades, if we look at the, the bookends of the last 20 or so years, there's two interesting pieces of research that when we look at them together, it shows a trend. Not necessarily a great trend, not necessarily a trend we wish was real, but if we look back at the beginning of the 2000s, Harvard did an, a very detailed three-year study, 2001 to 2023, where they discovered that 19.1% of Americans are dealing with some form of anxiety to the point that it could even be considered an anxiety disorder, which seems like a humongous percentage to me. But then we look at the trend, and specifically in the year 2020, and what all things pandemic did to our souls and our mental health. Another organization did a study in 2020 that showed 62%. Actually, a little more than 62% said they were experiencing anxiety. That's quite a trend. That, that's quite a, a, a momentous and, uh, and, and kind of heartbreaking momentum. But here's the thing about that, that trend. Here's the hope in it. We believe the gospel sets us free from any cultural trend that there is. As a matter of fact, like our mission here is guiding people to life change in Jesus Christ. So if you're looking back at your journey and you're saying, man, I'm drifting towards more fear and I'm drifting, drifting towards more anxiety. I just want you to know Jesus sets us free from the things that tend to define us. He's the ultimate trend. He's the trendsetter and he's the trend breaker. I'm grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus. So grab your Bibles so we can jump back in this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please keep that. Let that be our gift to you today. But we're going to invite you to join in our tradition. We're going to hold our Bibles and say a creed together before we dive into our text. Let's say this with some passion this morning. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind, and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 757. Here's what I love about Matthew chapter 1, if you are using a paper Bible like mine. So I love the beauty of the white page next to it. Right? Because this, this page does represent silence, but it also represents a whole lot of hope. <laughs> like the, this page is the picture of Advent. The Savior is coming. I, I think there's a lot of hope here. And this morning we're going to look at the Christmas story through the, the, the angelic encounter of Joseph. And I think the words fear not fit well. I will just tell you, we had no visitations from many angels when we had our boys. But I will tell you, when Maurice was pregnant with Garrett, I was terrified. 
I needed an angelic announcement to tell you, tell me not to be so afraid. Because all I was doing was going, hey, I don't have any clue what I'm doing. I've never changed a diaper in my life. And how are we going to pay for this thing? Because I, I just didn't know how expensive these little monsters were. And like, the closer we're getting to the due date, I'm like, this isn't magical. This is terrifying. How are we going to eat? And so this, this idea that a father is told to fear not is beautiful. We're going to start in verse number 1 of Matthew chapter 1. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Don't worry, we're not going to read all of the names in the genealogy. But that's worth parking because anytime you see genealogy in Scripture, here's what that means. Genealogy means humanity. And that's incredibly important to remember in the Christmas story. These are people with real names at real places, with real hopes and real dreams and real fears and real stories. We don't read this as the Christmas story. We don't read this as a Bible story. We read this as a a human story. People with the same tendencies that we do for good and for bad. It's so important to remember the humanity because if we can think of a real guy, an actual guy. He's so ordinary, his name's Joe. Right? And, and we're going to meet him in a very real moment in the text this morning. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is the only reference to Mary in the story here. Whereas last week in Luke's Gospel... We saw Mary's angelic visitation. We're not going to see uh, her backstory in this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's a weird verse if you just step back and look at it from a human perspective. Hey, this guy's such a good guy, he's planning on divorcing. I'm sorry, context please? That's just not usually the language that we use. And, and we don't really necessarily understand betrothal well in our culture. Some of your modern translations of the Bible might say engaged, and that's really not a great picture. We actually don't have a, an American or Western experience like betrothal. Because it's way more than engagement and it's barely less than marriage. The reality is that a betrothal was a, 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 a binding agreement. Like it was a signed marriage license. We just hadn't had the ceremony yet. As a matter of fact, a betrothal was so binding, that period usually lasted a year. Betrothal was so binding that the only way to break a betrothal was to do a full legal divorce. Which was a very different thing than it is today. I know maybe you come from a a faith background possibly where there was a lot of shame around divorce. But probably none of us can fathom the amount of shame that would have existed in this culture. Remember, this is humanity. These are real people at a real moment in history. And to be divorced was quite the thing then. He was honorable enough that he was going to do so quietly so as to not bring her to shame. Well, the fact is if the wrong Pharisee got wind of this, her life actually could have been threatened in this. You, you would be in this binding agreement typically for a year. The only way out of a betrothal was divorce or death. And if one of you were to pass away in the betrothal period, you were then called a widow or widower. That's how big of a deal this union was. And for some of you, I just, 
Maybe for somebody in this room, you'd say, yeah, I don't know for sure my marriage is going to survive the holidays either. Maybe somebody you care about a lot feels that way. That's actually how this began. The, The first Christmas was a Christmas where the divorce word was being thought about, talked about, and considered. If Joseph had chosen to do this, he would have been marked for life. This was an identity decision. If he would have divorced her, people would have then found out about her pregnancy as opposed to just sending her away or whatever. And and so what that would mean is either everyone would assume Joseph got her pregnant or maybe even more shaming to Joseph, people would assume she got pregnant with somebody else or they would be labeled as divorcees, which again in that day, if he did indeed go through with this divorce, the hopes of him ever finding another good Jewish father who would give him his blessing to give away his daughter was almost, almost zero. The idea of him being able to do business if he took over his father's carpentry business. People would not do business with him. He'd have not been a man of good repute. The risk here is real. The, the tangible risk here. He'd have been marked for life because everybody would have known. Sometimes people uh, will talk to me, actually complain to me about how our lives overlap here, some at Temple. And if, if you don't have a child in our preschool or our, our, our school uh, or, or our daycare, maybe you don't feel that. But for those of us that have, like, interlayer connections here, sometimes people will end up kind of having conflict with somebody, and they'll just leave the church. They're like, I just got to get away from all this. It's too interconnected. Do you know that for most of human history, everybody knew your business? We're the weirdos now where we segment and separate our lives. It used to be that we found a way to work through stuff. Like it used to be that we saw each other at our worst and still continued to do, to do life together. And so you could almost say that Joseph was at Temple. <laughs> Everybody's going to know, right? This is real. And so he is considering putting her away through divorce. Verse 20, but... As he considered uh, that now, okay, I'm, I'm telling you to like picture the humanity. And then we have the word considered. This was way more than like, I wonder what I should do. Like put yourself in the humanity of this. It's almost time for your wedding and your bride to be is like, by the way, I'm pregnant. It's from a ghost. And you're like, what in the Patrick Swayze is going on right now? This is not considering, like I ponder, like even some of our Christmas carols use that language of like they pondered. The, no, they were like, what in the advent is going on? He considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And I so desperately wish we knew how much time passed between verse 19 and verse 20. I don't know that in any other year in my life I've thought of that more than I have this Advent season. I desperately want to know how long between Mary's visitation and Joseph's. The real song, I know I cracked on Mary, did you know, a little bit last week. The real song is, Joseph, did you know? And the answer is, no, not for a while. We don't know for how long, but no. Joseph, did you know? No. In that incredible season of waiting and consideration an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream saying joseph son of david do not fear fear not to take mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from 
the Holy Spirit good to know. Right? Again, if we can experience the humanity of this, he's like, oh, he still has quite the decision to make. Because is anybody else going to believe that? He didn't. He's like, well, Angel, how many people in my town are you going to go talk to? Because if you'll show up, maybe they'll believe this. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Yeshua. Yahweh redeems, rescues, saves. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, a virgin shall conceive. He's like, yes, that's a good prophecy. I'm glad to know. There's a virgin who's conceiving here. Shall bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God in flesh, God in residence. When Joseph woke from his sleep, don't miss these words. He did. He went to bed overwhelmed. And he woke up obedient. We talked last week, that was kind of the the heart of our sermon last week, was the obedience of Mary. If you missed that, it's on our YouTube channel. Don't miss this in Joseph's life as well. Like in the midst of the majesty of all of this is two teenagers who said yes to God. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son. And she called, he called his name Jesus. So the first week of this Advent series, we focused on fear not when we're so easily offended. Week two, we talked about fear not when we're waiting for an answer, when God seems to not be giving us an answer. We looked at Zachariah and Elizabeth. Last week, we looked at fear not when the question is, God, how is this even possible to obey? This week, we're talking about fearing not as we face the weight of other people's opinions of us. You know, FOPO is a thing. Maybe you've heard about FOMO, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. It's a real thing. So is FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. It's a real thing. And some of us struggle with it worse than others, but it's a very human experience to be afraid of what other people think of you. How many of you would say that's a struggle for me? I, I worry about what other people think about me. Raise your hand. Yeah. So those of you who didn't raise your hand think you're too cool and you were afraid of what we would think of you. So we just want to call you out because all of us, I set you up, thank you for participating in it. We all care what someone thinks of us. And if we truly don't at all, there is a psychological term for that. It's called being a sociopath. <laughs> at some level, someone's opinion matters to us and the question is where does that come from whether it's just a little bit or a lot where does this struggle of of worrying about what people think of us come from and there's a lot of answers to that i want to whittle it down in simplicity to four possible sources of of struggling with the fear of other people's opinion number one fear of other people's opinion can come from negative untrue opinions about us there's things said about us that just aren't true, and we don't have the authority to fix the narrative. And we're like, man, people are running their mouth. They're saying stuff that isn't true. That had to be part of Joseph's concern. Because now he's had the visitation. Oh, it is actually true. But if I wrestled with this and I love her, then what are other people going to think? Fear of untrue negative opinions about us. Number two, the fear of negative true opinions about us. 
Listen, there's enough real stories about me that I'm like, ah, if people think that about me, it's actually true. That's even worse. Fear of other people's opinions can come from untrue or true opinions, or it can be negative opinions from significant people in our life. Maybe from your family of origin, maybe a coach, maybe a teacher, maybe a sibling, maybe a, a coworker at some point in time was an important person to you, and they did not ever give you that affirmation. They did not ever give you that approval. They never gave you uh, that positive thing you were looking for, and you've spent your life with a vacuum. I will tell you that's part of my journey. I've been honest before, I struggle with worrying about what other people think of me, with worrying about self-worth. And if I, the work that I've had to do on that is found out, man, there's a father wound there. There's a lack of affirmation from my earthly father that I kept looking to other significant people to fill. The first several churches that the Lord had us serve in, those things never worked out well. We left with frustration and conflict. I left completely feeling betrayed and let down by those pastors that I worked for. What I did not realize until later, it's because they were not living up to the unspoken, invisible job description. I slid across the table day one. Will you please be a father figure to me? They never agreed to that, but I sure held them to that standard. And then it didn't work out well. Maybe the the fear of other people's opinions were trying to replace that significant person's Opinion of us. But probably the most weighty of all these is fear of other people's opinion comes from negative opinions of ourselves, by ourselves, about ourselves. You've heard me say this before. Paul David Chip says, nobody is more influential in your life than you are because nobody talks more to you about you than you. And for a lot of us, that script that we speak from is a lot of negative stuff, a lot of shameful stuff. Blaming ourselves for things that have gone wrong, shame about failures in our past, insecurities about our normal human weaknesses. And for a lot of us, that's a a, a struggle, and it's actually affected our relationships. And, And here's why. If I am crumbling under the weight of self criticism, even the smallest criticism can crush me. And that person who just offered like healthy, constructive thoughts, they're like, why did that just crush you? What just happened? Because I'm not believing the gospel for myself. For those same years that I was struggling with those pastors who let me down, in our marriage, Marisa would say a very normal thing. And man, it cut to the soul of who I was because I'm like, oh, she thinks as bad of me as I must think of me. We end up crushed by the simplest of things. For Joseph to be worried about what people think, living in a shame-based culture, Makes sense. There's actually consequences for what other people think of us. What he encountered is there's something greater than that. I want to give you three observations about how we overcome the fear of other people's opinions. Whether we think that's a small struggle for us or a big struggle for us. Three observations from the text. And the middle one, the second one, we're going to park on a little bit longer. But here's the first one. We overcome the fear of other people's opinions through a greater opinion. Namely... The gospel. This is gospel faith. This announcement in verse 21. You'll call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. There's no better news than that good news. And here's the question this morning. 
are you one of Jesus' people? Like, are you the people of God? Am I one of Jesus' people? Well, I don't know. What are the qualifications? Well, you have to have sins that you need to be saved from. Oh, yes, I'm in. How great is that? So religion is, tell me about all your good qualities and we'll decide you, uh, whether or not you're in the inner circle or not. But the story of Jesus is, tell me if you've ever failed. Yes? Welcome to the family. How good a news is that? Like he doesn't save people who don't have sin. This glorious qualification of if I've ever had a bad day, then I get to be one of his people. How great is that? This idea that, that he saves people from their sins. And, and we don't want to talk about sin anymore, but that's the great equalizer relationally, right? So in the context of fear of other people's opinion, just think of the irony of this. So when it comes to my shortcomings, let's use biblical language. When it comes to my sins, I'm fearful about what other sinners sinfully think about my sins. Does that even make sense? The reality is, if you want to talk about my sins, they're worse than you could possibly whisper about amongst yourselves. And yet I've been saved by the life of Jesus Christ. So the the opinion that defines me is the God who declared me worthy enough to leave the glory of heaven to come and lay down his life so that I could be set free from my worst day. That's what defines me. That's the opinion that gets me up in the morning. Being obsessed with what other people think about us is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about us. And what I believe is because the gospel's true, nobody deserves the right to take that hope from you. Like nobody's laid down their life for you, so they don't get to declare you as less than worthy. Right? So at the end of the day, it's not an issue of, of, of callously not giving authority to people of what they think of you. It's just trusting. It's having a deeper faith in a greater opinion. Namely, the God of the universe who did not spare his own son for you. How great is that? His opinion was predetermined before we messed up, before we had a bad day. He determined, you're my kid. I will give you my favor. You're God's favorite. We are all tied for first place. I can't stand that in modern day sports, but it's awesome theologically. We don't get a participation trophy. We all get first place, most important to him. That's our worth. That's the opinion that sets me free from any lesser opinion. The first week when we talked about offense, we kind of centered that sermon as we were talking about Herod. We centered that sermon around a proverb. Like here's something we can sink our teeth into with this idea. And this morning I want another proverb to kind of be our anchor here for this text. Proverbs 29, verse 25, says, The fear of man lays a snare. There's no trap like living in the fear of what everybody else thinks about you. And the thing about a snare is that a snare does not entrap someone until it is set off. Please hear me out for just a second. A trap doesn't work until it's triggered, which is an actual real clinical term 
that we are abusing like crazy in our culture today. To, to be triggered means I've experienced like true, definable, diagnosable trauma in my life. And something inadvertently, unknowingly can trigger that trauma again. But we use that term today meaning I'm way too self-absorbed and sensitive and you've not walked on enough eggshells for me. And I want so bad for you to love me. And apparently you don't. And so I'm triggered. And that's not what triggered means. That means the fear of man has just put you in your own snare. And the thing about, so, so the fear of man lays a snare. No, no, no. Not that the man lays the snare that we're afraid of. We lay the snare for ourselves. And so there are people whose opinion means way too much to us, and they have no idea that we're trapped in that. They have no idea that we're held captive. They didn't put that snare. They're oblivious, which means they can't set us free. Only something greater can set us free from our own snare, which is the rest of the proverb. He who trusts in the Lord is safe. So either I trust what you think of me or I trust a greater opinion that will always lead me to safety. We overcome the fear of other people's opinion through a greater opinion. Number two, we overcome the fear of other people's opinions through a greater boldness. And so if the first observation in the text is gospel This is simple gospel obedience. We already mentioned it. I couldn't read it and not say something. I got ahead of myself. Verse 24, Joseph woke up from his sleep. He did what he said. He obeyed. He got up and obeyed God. I want you to, to, again, come back to the humanity of that. None of his questions about how other people would respond were answered in that angelic visitation. The angel didn't tell him about what any of his circumstances would be. He obeyed without a lot of information. I'd have been like, hold on. I have some questions. Can I take notes? Right? With a whole lot of unanswered questions, he got up and just did the next right thing. He simply trusted the word of the Lord and obeyed despite what anybody else would say or do or think or feel. And the reality of living under the the fear of other people's opinion is often pleasing God means displeasing people. There's a lot of times that doing the right thing does not agree with everybody else's opinion of your life. If I'm going to live by the fear of other people's opinion, I'm probably going to have to disobey God. There are consequences to other people's opinions of us. I don't want to discount that. I just think there's way greater consequences to disobeying God. Think about if Joseph had disobeyed. What what would have happened? Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. And so we'd all still be here today. But Joseph never could have fathomed in that moment that his obedience would mean that 2,000 years later we're talking about him this morning. We tend to kind of minimize Joseph's role in the story. He doesn't make most of the Christmas songs, right? Mother and child. And Joseph's like, bruh. Right? Just like all of us men were in the birth of our children. No one knew we were there. Right? Literally, people walk up, they ignore mother and father and 
goo-goo gaga over the baby and then ask mom how she's doing. And you're like, I haven't slept either. Yeah, I did. Okay. <laughs> That's why nobody pays attention to us. It makes sense. Let's be honest. So c- come back to our proverb. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. That word trusts is an is a beautiful word in Hebrew language because it's also translated confident, sure. Like the picture of that word trusts is not a hiding away kind of safety. It's not a 2023 safety. Somebody, right? Our our vision of keeping our kids safe means bubble wrapping them and keeping them indoors. My child's allergic to everything other than video games. No, like, not that kind of safety. Actually, a confident safety. A bold safety. A take-the-next-step safety. A behavioral safety. Joseph got up, not feeling circumstantially confident in himself. He got up feeling spiritually confident in the word of the Lord. We have a moment today where fear of man is replacing our fear of the word of the Lord. In a ton of Christian circles today, we're more concerned about what the public opinion is of us than what God's word says, especially on social issues. Entire denominations have moved away from the unified historical teaching of God's word on many of these issues because we're so afraid that people won't think we are cool or progressive or enlightened or tolerant or politically correct. And we've ended up entrapped. The message of Jesus has become ensnared by this desire to be liked. And the... the, There's not an ugliness to not being controlled by the fear of man, but there is a boldness. It's the language of the Apostle Paul. If God is for us, who can be against us? But people might say bad things about us on social media. Oh, no! Like, if God is for us, who can be against us? Some of you have heard me say this in uh, in my office. We've, We've talked about this before. In regards to the fear of man. This is something that's changed my life. What I believe. Is that I will only ever stand before one throne. On that great day. And. You will not be seated there. I love you. But I will not give an account to you on that great day. Which changes my fear of whether you approve of me or not. You see the freedom in that? There's no callousness in that. There's freedom in that. Only one throne. And here's the thing. You don't even have a throne. There's a pastor that I was counseling with the the counseling stuff I do. Um. Just recently, he had to go to a meeting with a lot of people who've kind of turned on him for some of his theological views. He was very intimidated. He was struggling. He was having some anxiety about this. He, he wrestles with some insecurity stuff. And he was like, dude, I don't even think I can go. 
And I was trying to encourage him to be obedient to the Lord and to go to this thing. And so I told him what I just told you, one throne. And I said, here's what I'm encouraging you to do. I'm encouraging you to say out loud to yourself, if need be, one throne, one throne, one throne, one throne. He talked to me afterwards. He said, I think I said it 500 times. But I went through the meeting and wasn't controlled by what other people thought of me. Because at the end of the day, we're only going to stand before one throne. That's the boldness in the book of Acts that we looked at last year. We must obey God rather than man. Because his throne is the throne we will stand before on that great day. And when we have that freedom to just obey God and not man, there's no telling what God might do with that. Right? Like, Mary and Joseph in their wildest dreams could not have imagined what God was going to do with their obedience. Craig Rochelle said, extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. I love that. Some of you are sitting here today and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ because somebody was just ordinarily obedient when God put you on their heart. Some of you showed up and heard the gospel here because a friend said, I think God's told me to invite you to come with me to a service. And then look what God did. He like changed your family tree. That's our family story. My mom heard the gospel because some people said, okay, God, I'll go share the gospel. Uh, you've heard me say this before. Like there's been this shift in modern times. Easter was always the day that people far from God were willing to consider going to church. And that's become Christmas. For the last several years, Christmas is more attended by people outside of the faith than Easter. Which means that person that God's put on your heart to say, hey, just come sit with me next Sunday morning on Christmas Eve. Next, next Sunday, we're going to continue in this series. We're talking about the shepherds. I'm not going to speak in Latin. No glory in excelsis Deo. We're going to sing old school Christmas carols. Not the like jazzy ones we did this morning. Like just normal ones. So just say, hey, come to a short Christmas Eve service with me. And just maybe in that obedience, God might do something extraordinary for their family. That's what God does. Some of you ordinarily said yes to God to serve in Temple Kids this past year. Marisa did an incredible job doing an appreciation breakfast for our Temple Kids volunteers a couple Sundays ago. In that, one of the things that we shared with our Temple Kids volunteers, a little ornament with a number on it, 193 eternal souls, elementary and younger, experienced the presence of Jesus here. Not counting BBS. 193 eternal souls experienced the presence of Jesus just because people were ordinarily obedient to serve the Lord and to serve people. How great is that? Like, you have no idea that that little toddler that's, like, breaking things might be breaking cultural trends 20 years from now. Right? That little boy that you think isn't paying attention to the lesson just very well may be the guy standing on this stage 20 years from now. Obedience to God can change the world. We're in the midst of, of ending the year with a Christmas offering. 
for a church our size to say we're, we're praying that God will raise $30,000 in 30 days. That, that, that's quite a step of, of faith. We've partnered with Gara, the Haitian refugee uh, church plant in the Dominican Republic. We have a final payment due on this church building that we've partnered with them. Some of you were with us in that building a couple months ago, several months ago. And some of you have felt God stirring on your heart to be a part of that offering. I'm just telling you, when we, when we give our yes to God, we have no idea what he might do. We should have no idea the fruit God might bear in that. And I will just tell you, the times that we have just been obedient to God with our finances are the times we've seen God do the most extraordinary things. Everything that's given next Sunday, unless it's a designated gift somewhere else, everything that's given next Sunday we're going to give towards that offering, plus you can give a designated gift now to that offering. We're basically giving away a whole weeks of our operational expenses to this offering in faith, and we're just asking you to meet with us in that step of faith and just see what God might do. Maybe there's a family in here that has felt a tug on your heart for 2024 that God's pushing you towards fostering or adopting, and you're just wondering, will this little step of obedience actually be an extraordinary thing? And I'm just telling you, when we see what God does with our yes, it just fuels our faith. So we overcome the fear of other people's opinions. First of all, through a greater opinion. And second of all, through a greater boldness. And lastly, through a greater relationship. This idea that, that the angel quotes from the prophetic promise that, that the birth of this virgin was going to bring to us Emmanuel. The with us God. Like everything changed with the birth of Jesus, what was unaccessible and far away came close. Meaning we now get to have an actual relationship with God. Our, our belief in Jesus isn't just saving faith for the future. It becomes a relationship that changes us today. And that relationship is intended to grow. So if, if that greater opinion is gospel faith, and that greater obedience, or that, that greater boldness, rather, is gospel obedience, this relationship is gospel growth. Like, it's this growing relationship. It's, it's this relationship that says, it's not just I met Jesus and we've been introduced. I'm getting to know him better. I'm walking with him. I'm growing in intimacy with him. I'm hearing his voice. I'm deepening my knowledge of him. And that's true for Joseph. Joseph is the only person in the Christmas story that God continued to send words to. We don't see Mary have another visitation. We don't see Zachariah and Elizabeth have another visitation. Those shepherds probably looked at the night sky every night for the rest of their lives. They never had another angelic host show up. But Joseph, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, when the Magi departed from them, the story we looked at at the beginning of our Advent series, an angel of the Lord appeared again to Joseph in a dream. Told him, hey, Herod is, is coming after your little baby. You need to go to Egypt. You look down at verse number 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared again in a dream to Joseph. Told him to go back to Israel. They get back into Israel. And in verse 22, he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea. In place of his father Herod, he's afraid to go there. And then here we go. He was warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee. 
he had an ongoing relationship with the Word of God, not just a one-time event. And here's what I can tell you. The closer I walk in intimacy with Jesus, the more freedom I experience from the fear of what other people think of me. Please hear what I just said. As a guy who has wrestled, battled most of his life with the fear of other people's value or opinion of me, I'm more free of that today than I've ever been. Not because I have more confidence in me, but because I've experienced more closeness with Jesus. I've never believed more his opinion of me than I believe it today. Not some deep new theological fancy thought. No, that the gospel's true. Is it? Like I believe the gospel more today than I did yesterday. And a corresponding freedom of that is I'm less controlled by the waves of other people's opinions. The reality is being in leadership in 2023 means nobody likes what you do. That's quite the roller coaster to live on. But that freedom that says, I'm invited into a relationship with the God of the universe. The more I hear his voice, the less power any other voices seem to have over me. The more I hear his voice, the less power my voice has over me. That's the beauty of developing a relationship with God. And, and, and the thing that's crazy, the amount of, of years of my life I've wasted worrying about the opinions of people who don't even know me. They don't even know me. They've been like, oh, I hope they like me. They don't even know me. Here's what's crazy. God knows all the worst stuff about me and still loves me with a perfect love. <laughs> the stuff that I'm sure you would be like, ugh. He's like, you're mine. How crazy. It would almost be too good to be true if I didn't believe it was so true. And the reason... That's so important is our, our anchor verse for this whole series has been 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. Perfect love casts out fear. It's not that it's not real, that we worry about what other people think. It's just that there's something greater. <laughs> it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I was thinking about this perfect love casting out fear, and thinking perfect love doesn't necessarily cast out the fearful thing like the circumstance might not get cast out just cast out its control over me it's it's defining of me and i thought about garrett when garrett was very little garrett was terrified of storms when he was tiny i mean like terrified of storms and if if there was a storm he was going to run to our bed like you just mark it down right like senior year of high school <laughs> junior year um like you you could like if if we heard thunder we were like three two one hi garrett there he is like he's coming and i was thinking about this context of garrett did not run towards his parents because he trusted in our meteorological uh, logical knowledge 
right, of the storm system and how it was moving and how we could circumvent its harm, right? He didn't, he didn't come to us because he knew we had the perfect storm shelter plan. I don't know. He just came to us because if he was with somebody who loved him most, he felt safe. It's childlike faith. And I'm just telling you, maybe you're like, I don't have all the theological answers. I don't understand all this. I didn't grow up in this. I don't know how to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. I'm just telling you, there's a loving Heavenly Father who invites you just to run to Him today. And specifically, if you're, if you're crumbling under the weight of what other people think of you or what you think of you, I'm just telling you, there's something better offered in the presence of Jesus. He loves you like you're His only child. And that perfect love casts out the control, the dominance of the fear of anybody else. There's a holy freedom in that that I think is just as available to you and me today as it was for Joseph 2,000 years ago.